is an ABC News special, COVID-19, What You Need to Know. Here is ABC News correspondent Aaron Katursky. Scientists are becoming more convinced coronavirus antibodies do provide a degree of immunity. The latest research out of Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston showed, in monkeys at least, that exposure to the virus led to the development of antibodies that protected against reinfection. It's why many people want to know whether they have the antibodies. The problem is the tests. A joint investigation by ABC News and the Mayo Clinic found a number of commercially available antibody tests do not meet medical standards for use and accuracy. Dr. Mark Abdelmalik, who's part of our medical and investigative teams here at ABC News, is with us. So four of nine tests that check for antibodies with a drop of blood from a finger prick underperformed. That's right. So Mayo Clinic decided to take a look at nine rapid antibody tests, and they ran them to see could they get results they could start to rely on for their patients in their labs. And what they found is that nearly half, four out of the nine of the tests that they did, didn't meet quality or performance or accuracy standards. Why not? What was wrong with these tests? So in a couple of them, there were some physical things wrong with the test, the construction of the test kit, the way that the sample entered into the little cartridge that you see. So for some of those, they right off the bat weren't performing well. And then for others, it was actually a quality issue. So the results that they got weren't actually reliable. They gave too many false positives or too many false negatives. And so they realized that about half of those tests weren't going to be able to be reliable. I saw in one instance the researchers substituted a saline solution for blood, and even that test returned a false positive? They put normal saline solution or a buffered saline solution into the little cartridge where the blood was supposed to go, and just with saline, it turned the test positive. So that was something that they repeated a couple of times and realized this test is not functioning at all. Do all nine of these have FDA approval? So for these nine tests, some of them have submitted for FDA, what they call emergency use authorization, but none of them have actually been granted that coveted status of emergency use authorization for the rapid test that they did. Now for some of the other testing that they did, the in-lab, high throughput, send a tube of blood to a lab, those, some of those did have FDA emergency use authorization. And do those perform any better than the rapid tests? So yeah, so the, the, the send-off tests where a, a tube of blood is drawn and it's sent to a lab, they did perform slightly better than the you know, rapid point-of-care little cartridge type of test. So in those settings, they did 10 of those kinds of tests, and 7 out of 10 did really well, and 3 out of the 10 did not pass or did not meet the Mayo Clinic quality standards. What's the harm? What's the concern? You know, doctors order these tests so that we can take some action, so that we could do something for the patient. So we're doing a test to find out how likely it is that you have antibodies. And if we're basing decisions on testing, we want to have accurate tests. Dr. Mark Abdelmalek on the antibody tests. Of the coronavirus cases in the United States in which a person's race was identified, the CDC said 30% were black Americans, far higher than their 13% share of the population. This week, ABC News is focusing on the disproportionate impact of the virus on communities of color as part of a series called A Nation Divided. Dana Cobbs joins us from her home in New Haven, Connecticut. You're one of three generations to suffer from the virus. My grandmother, who was 95 passed away from COVID 
And then one week later, my dad also passed away. Um, he was 73, also from COVID. And I myself was sick also. That's more than anyone should have to bear. Agreed. I definitely was not expecting that. Everything just happened so fast. And this was, you know, March. So at that time, he had to wait seven days to get his results. But we never lasted seven days. We had to call the paramedics for him. He was the caregiver for my grandmother. And she lived with him at his house. And we needed to call the paramedics for her too. Literally the same, one of the same paramedics who was there the day before for my dad was back again now for my grandmother. Oh my. Yeah, it just became an ordeal. You being sick and then the loss of your father and, and grandmother, that just seems incredibly cruel. You know, I hadn't thought about the cruelty of it, but whatever energy I had left, I needed to be on the phone with hospitals and doctors discussing my grandmother's care and my dad's care. It sounds exhausting. It was exhausting. Even though I was sick and I recovered, the amount of worry and the amount of fear, you know, was really heavy. How have you been coping? I do have a therapist who I talk to, but loss is new to me. It's very new. My therapist says that I am still in shock and a little bit of denial. It almost seems unfair that you're left to deal with three generations of illness and death in one family. I spoke to my, my primary physician the other day. I had to you know, give him the news you know, that they had both passed. And he too said something, you know, very similar. You know, he, he says, you are kind of the picture of, you know, what we're seeing the trend to be and what we're seeing in the news and in the research, you know, generations of families, I'll say wiped out, be, kind of being wiped out. I'm not sure that was his word, but, you know, especially families, you know, that live in close quarters, you know, when everyone's under the same roof. That wasn't really the case for my dad and I, but I was going over my dad's house to help care for my grandmother. So I don't know, you know, I asked myself, did I bring it into my dad's house? Did a nurse bring it in the house? And so we'll never know. But if you have certain underlying conditions, and I know that people who look like me tend to, I feel like as people of color, we all know it's awful. Some of us, I think, look at it from a place of fear and don't want to get sick. Um, or can't and definitely can't afford to get sick. Some of us, I think, are afraid to go get tested. And a month and a half ago, testing what it wasn't was not what it was today. Now you get your results instant, instantly. It's amazing to me. And where I live, you know, now there are testing centers almost everywhere. It's the simplest thing in the world. You know, I wish that sort of testing was available. Two months ago. Dana Cobbs from New Haven, Connecticut. Her dad, Morgan, was 73. Her grandmother, Evelyn, was 95. When working from home became the norm in this pandemic, the FBI warned us about Zoom bombing when video conferences are hijacked. And at first, it seemed more prank than crime, a class interrupted by somebody posting the teacher's phone number, or worse, spewing hate speech. Now, Zoom bombing is getting uglier. Gregory Takis is a special agent in charge at the FBI's Newark division. What's happening? During the last few months, uh, the FBI has received over 195 reports of incidents in which 
a Zoom participant was able to broadcast a video depicting child sexual abuse material. That's really horrifying. Child sexual abuse is a violent criminal activity. And we not only investigate it to protect children, but the viewing of violent sex, child sexual abuse is also what we deem it's a victimizing event. It is, it is a victimization of the individuals on that Zoom. So it is a tremendous problem that we want to get in front of now. While we have a, a numerous reports, we'd like to prevent any further victimization as it goes on. If this pops up on someone's screen, what should they do? The first thing to do, obviously, contact the FBI. Do not delete or destroy any of your computer logs without further direction. We've, we're tracking a case, uh, at least one case now, where there was a 20-second video. Uh, the gut reaction is to shut off, and that's, that's a great idea. Get off that, that Zoom. We will be able to capture and go back in and recreate the digital fingerprints that we need to get to the perpetrator of that. But if you delete or destroy any of those computer logs, we can't. Uh, if you recorded the Zoom meeting in which child sexual abuse material was broadcast, contact the FBI for, for removing that from your device. You don't want to inadvertently record it, redistribute it. Do you have any sense of why this is happening with such increasing frequency? I wish I had a good reason why it was occurring. I do not know and I can't speak to whether there's some sort of, of sexual gratification by the perpetrator or it is... Uh, just a, an act of vandalism that's intensified in, in the violence. I don't know. I just know it, it, it. as we are moving to these online meetings, this is one of those areas that you know, it's a vulnerability that's being exploited. Gregory Takis at the Newark Division of the FBI. I'm Aaron Katursky. Now over to Amy Robach. Thanks, Aaron. With me now is ABC Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Jen Ashton. And Jen, very much on our minds here at ABC is this three-day initiative we have across numerous platforms, A Nation Divided. This pandemic in the U.S. has shown disproportionate disease and death rates in minorities. We've been talking about Mm -hmm. it. And it's something that's also been echoed in the U.K. as well. What do we know about this aspect of COVID-19 here in the U.S.? This is what we know at this point. We know that the CDC only started releasing data based on race and ethnicity in late April. This is now only available for about 35 percent of our U.S. data nationwide. That's in terms of confirmed cases and deaths. And we also know there is a disproportionate disease burden on African-American and American-Latino communities, clearly. And so everyone, of course, is looking into the why of this. There's no one answer. It's very complex. Absolutely. It's a complicated issue. But here are the theories at this point. Number one, we also know that before this happened, these populations had markedly higher rates of obesity, diabetes, high blood pressure. We know that that stacks the deck for complications against COVID-19. We also think that there may be more exposure for people in these groups in essential jobs that places them at greater risk. And then also, in many cases, there's been a historic mis trust of health systems, medical care that have in many cases underserved these communities of color. All of those things at play for not only their disease, but their death rates. This is a glaring, significant yeah. problem that we now are addressing. But what's not known at this point? Well, I think what, once we identify an issue, then we have to figure out what we're going to do about it. And what we don't know right now is whether these populations deserve different screening or testing methods because we know they're at higher risk. We don't know the best way at which to implement community outreach in terms of reaching them. And 
as a med as a scientist and a doctor, I'm really focused on will there be clinical trials that will address them specifically? We haven't seen that yet. And just as it's important in gender, it is very important for race and ethnicity as well. Dr. Jen Ashton, you'll be back with us later in the show. Thank you. Well, Alabama's state health officer says the state's COVID-19 numbers are not as good as they could hope for. Those comments following the state's reopening this month. Joining us now with the frontline fight on the ground there in Birmingham, Alabama, Mayor Randall Woodfin. Mayor Woodfin, thanks for being with us. And I know that since the reopening, there has been, yes, a rise in COVID cases in your state capital. Montgomery hospitals have now reached a critical point. That city's mayor saying yesterday overflow cases are now going to be rerouted to hospitals with you there in Birmingham. How concerned are you about the impact they may have on your residents? Well, I am concerned. You know, since day one, um, what we've tried to do is strike a balance between the health crisis in our city and the economic crisis. Um, every decision we've made has been in conjunction with um, our health care office, our health care office here, as well as the UAB Health Systems, which is the fourth largest hospital in the nation. And what we've attempted to do is not only save lives, but prevent community spread, as well as pre to prevent a run on our hospitals. And so with the information coming out of Montgomery, I'll stay in contact with Mayor Reed down there. Um, but I am hoping that um, we can solve this by making sure we do better things to protect uh, not only Birminghamians, but Alabamians as well. Yeah. And, and speaking to that, this week, several graduations went on near Birmingham as planned, and they drew thousands of people. What's your reaction to that? Well, you know, every community is different. And I think what I have attempted to do is over-communicate to the residents of Birmingham that this COVID-19 pandemic is not over. Just in the last seven days, there have been over 230 cases tested positive here in, in our county. 19 deaths in the last seven days in our county. Um, we have to be vigilant. Um, we vigilant. We have to take this seriously. And I believe um, it's not enough to just wear um, facial covers. We have to do other things to make sure that there is not community spread. And so um, I am concerned as any other elected official um, in this state and in this country around are we doing what's necessary to protect people? And with nearly all businesses, Mayor, there in Alabama reopened, we understand you have a plan to help keep people safe in areas with large numbers of bars and restaurants. What is that? Well, of course, the state reopened um, large portions of our, our, our economy here. And they said that they wanted 50 percent of those businesses to be open. Well, we know that there's still fear and anxiety that exists here. And so we're trying to strike the balance between supporting our small businesses, but making sure that people are going to come out and eat and socialize, that there's enough distance and space. And so we, we're calling it eating our streets. And what we're doing is is shutting down a lot of our streets um, within our city that are in proximity of a lot of these um, restaurants and other places where people gather to make sure that there is intentional social distancing um, to balance people feeling safe to come out, but at the same time, making sure that there's not community spread. Right. And of course, this is all in an effort, uh, among other things, to ease the economic impact of this pandemic on your city. You recently started, in addition, the Birmingham Strong Service Corps. Tell us what that is. Um, well, it was a joint, um, it was a joint effort. as a public-private partnership. The first phase of it that we, we um, raised $2.4 million in public-private dollars to support a lot of these small businesses that had to shut their doors. Um, that supported about 90 businesses within our city. 
And now we have the core program of this, which goes right right at supporting these hourly workers who've been laid off. Um, they make anywhere from $13 to $22 um, an hour. And it is about addressing COVID-related issues in our community, such as a call center, letting residents know that testing is available. In addition to that, also transportation um, and other things to let our residents know um, that we are addressing these issues in every community effort way we can. Yeah, and I know you've been talking to church leaders also in your area to try and come up with a plan for reopening services, people really needing their faith more than ever these days. What's been the outcome of those talks? Well, listen, the biggest single um, event in Alabama, COVID-related, has been from a church experience. We know that in church, um, it is 100% community. People hold hands, shake hands, hug, kiss, sing, shout. And these are the things that give to community spread. And so my conversation since March has been directly to our faith leaders. Um, your, your church ground, your, your place of faith is the number one possibility of community spread outside of nursing homes. So it's really important that um, you not open up yet. But if you do, you should take certain measures, as in any of your um, members of over 60 years of age shouldn't attend yet. Um, you should watch how you engage members um, when they come into the actual physical space. And there are many other conversations with our faith leaders, but I have walked with them since day one. And I want to publicly thank them um, for taking this serious, seriously and doing the thing necessary, not only to protect their members, but to protect the community and the city of Birmingham. Well, Birmingham Mayor Randall Woodfin, we publicly thank you for all that you've done for your community and that you continue to do. And thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much. The coronavirus is exposing gaps in the country's school system and inequalities that are not going to disappear even when things do go back to normal. The students mostly impacted are those who are low income and minorities. Prince George's County in Maryland has some of the wealthiest African-American communities in the country, and yet the county is still experiencing these disparities. Here to explain how its school system is coping with COVID is the CEO of Prince George's County Public Schools, Dr. Monica Goldston. Dr. Goldston, thanks so much for being with us. And I know you grew up in Prince George's County. You graduated from the public schools you now run. So why do you think there is such a disparity still in your county? And what are you trying to do to remedy that? Yes, thank you for having me. I have the opportunity to represent 136,000 students, but still 82,000 of them are participate in the federal government's free and reduced meal program. And so for us, it was extremely important to make sure that I closed the access gap that exists during this pandemic. We started quickly by distributing over 60,000 Chromebooks to our students. We had parents who stepped up and helped 15,000 of them, allowed our students to use technology that they have at home. And with the assistance of our Board of Education, we were able to reallocate $2 million to work with our partners at Comcast and Verizon to provide Wi-Fi access. We then also offered lessons on our television station, our public television station by master teachers. And then we offer enrichment packets that can be picked up at any of our 49 meal distribution sites. So for me, it was important to make sure that I met the needs of all of our community members and students, knowing that we serve a community um, with such large disparities that exist in income. Dr. Monica Goldson, thank you so much for being with us. We certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you, Amy, and please continue to remain safe.
Thank you. Same to you. Coming up, the special medical Q&A up next with our Dr. Jen Ashton. Key information for the hardest hit among us in the COVID-19 crisis, part of our A Nation Divided special coverage. And then we will speak with a representative from an American community hit hard by COVID-19, the Navajo Nation. Stay with us. Dr. Jen Ashton is joining us now with your medical questions and answers. And we're focusing today on some of the most vulnerable to the risks of COVID-19, Dr. Jen. So we'll begin with our first question, which is, can you make a case to your doctor to get a test, even if you aren't showing symptoms, but are worried about your older relatives? Short answer, yes. We haven't heard a lot about this in the the realm of testing, because basically this is referring to testing asymptomatic people who are just living with someone who may be vulnerable or at high risk. And I can give you a perfect example. Let's say you have an elderly person or someone with a pre-existing medical condition or someone who's pregnant pregnant at home and you have a job or exposure that may put you at risk, yes, you could make a case for wanting to know if you are one of these asymptomatic cases because, and you've heard me say it before, it would change your behavior at your home. So again, we shouldn't do a test unless we're going to know what we're going to do with the result of that. And if you were to test positive being asymptomatic, you would maybe distance yourself from that person at home more. You might do extra cleaning. If possible, that person might go live somewhere else temporarily. So yes, I think we should be hearing more about that. But right now, very good question. It hasn't even skimmed the surface. Yeah, and and an important one, indeed, with at least 50% potentially of people being asymptomatic. All right. What are the some things you can do to protect your multi-generational household if you are forced to go back to work? This is so important, Amy, because we're learning that actually most cases are occurring at home. That's where people are becoming infected. So how does that work? Even some people who might be protected and bubbled, as we say, not going out, live with people who do. They have to go to work or they are going out to get food or groceries, et cetera, et cetera. So what you do in your home environment may be coming more and more important. So it's very easy to say, oh, use a different bathroom. A lot of people, that's not a realistic option for them. So you do want to keep your distance as much as possible in those areas where we have high contact and high density of exposure, meaning kitchen, bathrooms, clean them well, try not to sit so close to the person if you're if you're eating dinner together and be careful when sharing meals because that's something that we have to reprogram ourselves as to our behavior when we pass something, use the same utensil, eat off someone's plate as occurs often in my household. Right, exactly. Yeah, I yeah, know it's a whole new way to retrain exactly. how we interact with one another. Yep. All right, next question. What should you do if you think you are being treated in a biased manner by your doctor? Don't be afraid to calmly speak up about it. And it could be in the form of a question. It doesn't have to be accusatory. You could say, I feel as if such and such, or I'm a Latino American, I'm an African American. Should I be getting different screening, different testing, different treatment, different provisions? This is really important. I once heard of a a case just recently in Boston where an African American patient in the hospital was being screened for COVID multiple times. And the patient actually thought he was being subjected to racial bias for multiple testing by the physician. In some cases, that could be a good thing because you're more on the lookout. But again, how this is perceived can be very triggering for both sides. So just calmly communicate. 
That's the, that's the best advice. Yeah, it's always the yeah. right advice, yep. right? All right, For Dr. Sure. Jen, thank you so much. You and you can submit questions to Dr. Jen on her Instagram at Dr. J. Ashton. Well, the Navajo Nation, located in parts of Arizona, Utah, and New Mexico, has been one of the hardest hit areas of COVID-19 and now has the highest infection rate in the United States. Joining us now to talk more about this impact is Navajo Nation President Jonathan Nez. Mr. Nez, thank you so much for being with us today. And we just said the Navajo Nation leads the country, yeah. unfortunately, in per capita infection rates. What are you doing to protect your community from further spreading this virus? Uh, thank you for having us on the show, Amy. And uh, we have uh, actually incorporated some really tough, uh, strict uh, policies by a uh, shelter-in-place order, a uh, stay-at-home order, as well as curfews every day from uh, 8 p.m. to 5 a.m. And this uh, this weekend, Amy, we're going to have the seventh 57-hour lockdown here on the Navajo Nation. And we're doing that because, you know, the federal government just recently uh, allocated funds to the tribes throughout the country. And, you know, it's been seven and eight weeks ago since the monies came in to, uh, to aid everyone throughout the United States. But tribal communities have been waiting and so because of that, we have to utilize our own sovereign ability to help uh, stop uh, the spread of COVID, uh, COVID here on the Navajo Nation. As you all were mentioning in the earlier segment, multi-generations of mm-hmm. family members live under one roof. And just to give you an update, uh, Amy, 27,162 people have been tested here on the Navajo Nation. 4,253 have the virus. We are now tracking recovery rates. 1,026 have recovered. We have 146 deaths. Yes, we are high per capita above New York and New Jersey. But let me also say that of all the 50 states here on the Navajo Nation, we are testing aggressively. Here on the Navajo Nation, we have tested 13.2% of our total population. And compared to just this past weekend, with what uh, New York uh, announced, a little bit over 7%. So, of course, if you test yeah. a lot of, our, of your citizens, of your population, you'll have a high positive and negative result. I just applaud your efforts because you see how much work you put into this, uh, seeking federal aid, trying to protect your people. But as you look to the future, I'd love to hear from you. What gives you hope for your community going forward? Oh, thank you for that question, Amy. The folks behind me, They're the ones that are inspiring me, giving me hope as a leader of the Navajo Nation, because we're all in this together. They're out there getting the word out to our Navajo citizens. The best place to be and the safest place to be right now is at home. You have stories, not just here on the Navajo Nation, but throughout the country of people in local rural communities coming together to help each other out. And let me just say Here on the Navajo Nation, we've been through some hard times in our history as Navajo people. And Amy, we will get through this uh, pandemic here on the Navajo Nation by working together. And I urge all the states around us, let's uh, slow the opening of businesses, please. Let's just not open businesses throughout the region. You see spikes happening in Texas and other states, but we are all in this together. What happens here on the Navajo Nation affects everyone around us and vice versa. So everyone that's staying home and listening to the healthcare providers, those professionals and those scientists, please adhere to their recommendations 
and we will get through this together. Thank you so much, Amy. Oh, thank you for your incredible leadership and your inspiring words. Navajo Nation President Jonathan Ness, thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Amy. God bless. We often hear that contact tracing is one of the keys to slowing the spread of COVID-19 and returning to a more normal way of life. But what exactly is contact tracing and how is it done? Well, here to tell us what we need to know is an infectious disease epidemiologist at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, Dr. Emily Gurley. So, Dr. Gurley, thank you for being with us. And you can answer that first question. What is contact tracing and how does it work? Well, it's nice to be here and I'm happy to talk about contact tracing because I think it is one of the best ways for us to reopen parts of our society with some confidence uh, that transmission isn't going to get out of control. So the virus relies on us and our connections to each other to propagate, to spread. And contact tracing practically is reaching out to people, calling people who are infected with COVID-19 or who have been exposed and could also be infectious and helping to let them know and give them um, the advice and the tools that they need so that they can change their behavior and not transmit to anyone else. So asking people to change what they do to, uh, to stop the spread. And it's important to note, this is not a new weapon here in battling a virus. Contact tracing has been used in the past successfully. Contact tracing is used every day for other diseases and outbreaks. So you're absolutely right. It's nothing new. It's been around as long as we've had a concept of public health. Um, we use it for uh, to stop the spread of HIV, tuberculosis, sexually transmitted diseases. It was used to stop the Ebola outbreak in West Africa that many folks may have heard of. So um, there's nothing new, but the scale and the speed mm-hmm. that we have to do this for COVID-19 is unprecedented. So it's going to take unprecedented efforts. Right. And so what should someone expect if they get that call from a contact tracer? So if you get a call, there are two reasons. First, you've had a test for COVID-19 and it's positive. Um, So you should be expecting a call. So public health is going to reach out to you and find out how you're doing, make sure you have what you need, including access to medical care. They're going to talk to you about what you're doing to stop the spread to other people and what you need to do um, to make sure you don't infect anyone else. Uh, Then they're going to find out who you may have infected, um, who who you uh, had contact with while you've been infectious. Um, And it's important to find those people because they've been exposed and they could also be infectious. As you probably know, People can be infected with this uh, virus uh, and never know it. They may never develop signs or symptoms. um, Or even if they are going to develop disease, uh, they are infectious before that happens. So people can unknowingly infect others. And so this is your best way of finding out that you could do that. And again, they're going to help you come up with a strategy to limit your contact with people you live with and make sure that you're not having any other contact with people that could give this virus more opportunities to spread in the community. Um, But it's important to remember, like they're never going to ask you about your social security number or your credit card information. (laughs) They're calling to help you. Um, they may ask for, they're going to ask your name and they may ask you to confirm your birthday, uh, just to make sure it's you because they may be sharing some personal information. Um, it's also important to remember if they call you and tell you that you've been exposed, they'll never tell you 
who the case is that you you were exposed to. So they're never going to disclose who the person with COVID-19 is. Um, so people need to know that. Yeah, too. because I was literally about to ask you about fraud because, you know, a lot of people have taken this tragedy and, and used it to try and get information, personal information from people. So that's important for people to remember. You are the lead instructor for this online contact tracing course. What are your tracers learning? So this is a course that consists of online lectures and videos, and it's designed to take people who have may have no background in public health or infectious diseases at all and give them all the basics they need to know uh, to be able to go on to a more um, in-depth, on-the-job training as a contact tracer. Um, so... It's available to anyone. It's free. Uh, people are taking it just because they want to know what contact tracing is and more about the disease. So you're welcome to do that. Um, and, but a lot of people are taking it because they want to become contact tracers. And I would encourage them to reach out to their local health departments and see what initiatives there are to ramp up contact tracing there. Yeah. And hopefully it will lead us to a path of a new normal. Dr. Emily Gurley, thank you so much for your time and your explanation, your expertise. We appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Next, we have two guests who are lending a helping hand in their home of Puerto Rico, getting essentials to those in need. Jose Soto Rivera and Isaac Romero Calderon have started an initiative called A Comer Puerto Rico, or Puerto Ricans Feeding Puerto Ricans, to help deliver food and medical resources to geriatric communities and those affected by earthquakes that are struggling even more now due to this pandemic. So, Jose and Isak, thank you so much for joining us, both of you. Tell us first what inspired you to help out in this way in these communities there in Puerto Rico. Um, hi, I'm Jose, and I'm, we're really happy to be here. Um, when COVID-19 in Puerto Rico, it hit hard. Um, quarantine was enforced, and anyone who left their house after hours would be liable for a $5,000 fine or six months in jail, and the service sector was completely disrupted. Many were left without a job, myself included, and I just wanted to help people without a revenue see how they could get some money, I mean, some critical goods in. Um, in particular, my grandmother called me one, at one weekend, and she asked me to deliver groceries to her house um, or her geriatric residence facility. Um, in that residence, there were 200 residents, and 100 of them had no one to turn to for supplies. All of these residents were forced to stay inside by the administrators, and that was just a call to action for me. I just wanted to see how we could get these people the supplies they really needed. And for me, my mother is a pediatrician with the American Academy of Pediatrics, so when I came out from college, she started talking to me about these relief efforts she had participated in to help uh, earthquake-afflicted communities. She told me about the rough living conditions they faced every day and how the supply chains they had are now drying up with COVID-19 crisis. She also told me about the victims of domestic abuse who are now living 24-7 with their abusers and how right now they really needed our help. Wow. And so it's one thing to see the need. It's another thing to put it all together as quickly as you did. How did you do it? Yeah, so I've worked on government initiatives before, and I have a bit of a bit of expertise um, on these initiatives. And I just reached out to my whole network. I called all my friends. I bothered every single person I knew. And um, there were people who really wanted to help, and especially like college students who were at home not really doing much. Um, we got a team of 12 volunteers for our first delivery, and with the uh, help of Team 821, we delivered to 50 families in Guanica um, somewhere in early April. That's amazing. And what are you providing to those in need? Yeah, so we wanted to make sure we could help people regardless of how we scaled our funding on delivery efforts. Then we contacted local doctors and the communities themselves to see what they really needed, what kinds of goods and services were like the most crucial. We ended up making these packages containing basic produce, canned goods, medical supplies, and hygienic supplies. And these packages, we estimate support a family of four for about two weeks. 
not only are we providing these packages, but we're connecting the communities with a network of uh, support services, including mental health care hotlines and even the house repair services. Well, it's incredible what you're doing, what you've done so far. We can't wait to see where you take this. Jose and Isak, thank you so much for helping others and for joining us today. Thanks for having us. We turn now to Dr. Jen Ashton for her final thoughts. Well, Amy, as we're all focused on this racial and ethnic divide and and what is really being shown by this virus, I wanted to, again, bring it back to medicine where it is so important to identify differences in a patient as you're evaluating them, as you're treating them, as you're screening them, that is really key. However, there are caveats. And it is important when you identify someone by race or ethnicity not to generalize, not to presume or assume, but to use it as part of our medical approach. And I think this is a perfect example of this is not a one-size-fits-all um, technique and style that we have in clinical medicine or in public health. And this virus is showing us we need a targeted approach to fighting it. I've heard you say that so many times before. Dr. Jen Ashton, thank you for being with us today. And that is what you need to know on this Thursday. I'm Amy Robach. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.